faithful God, we thank you for the truthfulness and trustworthiness of your word, and we pray now that Jesus Christ, the centre and focus of that word, might be made known to us now. Scatter the gloom of doubt and unbelief and sin and be our everything. Amen. Please be seated. And if you could please uh, make sure that you have sight of a Bible and uh, if you're using uh, the church Bible, it's... uh, page 1012. This is the Gospel of Mark and chapter 9. And uh, Martin read for us verses 9 to 32. Mark chapter 9, verses 9 to 32. Pages 1012 and 13. Well, it had been a mountaintop experience to top the lot. Right there in front of three of his disciples, Jesus had experienced a brief but amazing transformation. His face shone. Even his clothes became dazzling white. Two godly men from long ago, Elijah and Moses, had put in personal appearances. And God himself had spoken. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And as the four of them came down the mountain, Jesus gave Peter, James, and John a solemn instruction. You'll see that in verse 9. Don't tell anyone about you have just seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. (coughs) Hold that thought, please. But as far as the four of them are concerned, it's down the mountain and back down to earth with a thud. Just picture the scene that they walk into, verses 14 and following. There are the other nine disciples looking helpless and confused. There's a bunch of Jewish scholars arguing and finding fault with those poor disciples. There's a jostling crowd enjoying the morning's entertainment of an almighty squabble between those Jewish teachers and the disciples. And then there's a desperate father beside himself with worry. And there somewhere around is the reason for all this mayhem, that father's severely disturbed son. It is indeed a scene of absolute chaos. What's all this fuss about, Jesus demands to know. And a voice from the crowd answers, verses 17 and following. That voice belongs to the father of that so very disturbed boy. Teacher, he says, I brought you my son. He is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And then the father goes on to describe how the poor boy keeps falling to the ground 
foaming at the mouth, gnashing his teeth and going rigid. Well, these sound for all the world like the symptoms of epilepsy, do they not? But um, hang on for a moment. Look at verse 20. Why is it that as soon as the boy comes into the presence of Jesus, he goes into a seizure? Look at verse 22. And do you notice there how maliciously destructive these seizures are, throwing the poor boy into fire and water? He's probably covered with scars. And then look at verses 25 to 27, if you will. These verses clinch the matter, I think, by telling us that Jesus healed the boy by rebuking the evil spirit that was causing all of these problems. No, this is not an ordinary case of epilepsy. The problem is not essentially neurological. It is demonic. Now, I guess it's unlikely that many of us here this evening have witnessed ourselves such an outright case of demonization. And so there's danger that we might distance ourselves and sort of say, well, that was then, 2,000 years ago, that kind of thing doesn't happen today, does it? But what are we to make of this really rather extreme case of demonization? Well, I think we need to assert that such cases of demonization can and do occur. I think on biblical and historical grounds that such Severe cases of demonization tend to occur in two kinds of situation in particular. The first kind of situation is, um, is where Jesus and his gospel are not yet well known. That is to say, situations where the devil can do his work relatively unrestrained by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And therefore, we often find uh, stories of such demonization coming from pioneer missionary situations. John L. Nevius was, for 40 years, a missionary to the Chinese. He went to China uh, with a settled skepticism about demons and demonization. He thought that all such ideas were primitive and outdated. What he found in China then, we're talking about the second half of the 19th century, what Nevius found in China was not only a widespread belief in evil spirits, but also many experiences that could only reasonably be explained by reference to demonic powers. And these led him to contact a number of his fellow missionaries in other countries with a questionnaire inviting them to record their observations. And he came to the very firm conclusion that demons were and are still around today. So demonization in a pioneer missionary situation. And it seems to me the second kind of situation in which demonization is often found is almost the opposite of that, situations where the Christian gospel is making very great and considerable progress in times of spiritual awakening, in times of what we might call revival, then Satan is provoked to show his true colours. 
We find a number of such instances recorded, for example, in the journal of John Wesley, an evangelist and Christian leader of the 18th century revival, sometimes called the Great Awakening. I've used the following example before, but I give it to you again, uh, since it is, I think, a rather typical example of what Wesley and uh, other Christian leaders found at the time. Wesley writes this in his journal. I was sent for to one in Bristol. She lay on the ground, furiously gnashing her teeth, and after a while, roared aloud. It was not easy for three or four people to hold her, especially when the name of Jesus was named. In the evening, she began screaming before I came into the room, then broke out into a horrid laughter mixed with blasphemy, grievous to hear. One who from many circumstances apprehended a preternatural agent asking, How didst thou dare to enter into a Christian? was answered, She is not a Christian. She is mine. We left her at twelve and called again about noon on the 26th. And now it was that God shows he hearest the prayer. All her pangs ceased in a moment. She was filled with peace and knew that the son of wickedness was departed from her. The Journal of John Wesley, October 1739. There's two kinds of situation then in which demons may be likely to manifest themselves obviously and overtly. But for much of the rest of the time, it seems to suit the devil's schemes to operate undercover, incognito, sidling and nestling, as it were, up to the enemy within, the sinful nature, using deceit, suggestion, insinuation, accusation, temptation, discouragement, oppression, and the many other stratagems that he has in his arsenal. But all done nice and quietly, so one doesn't really need to have to believe that he even exists in the first place. After all, hell is a conspiracy, as Whitaker Chambers once said, and the first requirement of a conspiracy is that it remain underground. Well, the devil may work secretly and quietly for much of the time, but he works maliciously and tirelessly nonetheless. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 states that all of us, before we received new life in Christ, followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Chilling thought, is it not? That the devil has a hand in all godlessness and sin. And John, in his first epistle in chapter 5, asserts that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 
Let us not for a moment then underestimate the power and malice of the devil and his angels. We're in a battle. And that battle may be less overt than in our passage tonight, but it is no less real. Anyway, this father was at his wit's end. The nine disciples could do nothing to help him. The scribes just wanted to argue and criticise. The crowd just gawped. In verse 19, Jesus expresses his dismay. Quoting from one of the Psalms, I think he says, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Not for the first time, Jesus was faced with a wall of unbelief. Just uh, three chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 5 and following, we read that in his own hometown of Nazareth, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people and heal them, a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. I wonder about us, us in this country, in this day and age, in this generation, in this city of Norwich, in this county of Norfolk, in this church of Holy Trinity. I wonder if Jesus would recognise in us a climate of belief or of unbelief. Would we give him, do we give him cause for hearty commendation or for bitter complaint? Verse 19, bring the boy to me, says Jesus. And the father begins to plead with Jesus. Verse 22, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Notice Jesus' reply in verse 23, what do you mean, if you can? Everything is possible for him who believes Do you see how Jesus turns the tables here? It's not a question of if I can do it, but if you can believe that I can do it. The man's man's response to that is truly remarkable. The American writer Ernest Hemingway once set himself the task of writing a novel that consisted of only six words. How much thought, how much feeling, how much imagination, he wondered, would it be possible to cram into just six words? Well, what Hemingway came up with was this. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Well, no doubt there's a world of meaning there in those six words. But surely there's a universe of meaning in the father's reply to Jesus in verse 24. Literally, what the man says is this. Just six words. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, just six words in English translation. Expressing a weak faith, a faltering and a flickering faith, 
but expressing a real faith and a sincere faith. And even a weak faith can lay hold of a strong saviour. This desperate man has put himself in precisely the position where he can receive Christ's help. We are weak, but he is strong, and that's what matters. In verse 25, we see Jesus then confronting the demon. There's no magical incantation or formula. There's no theatrical hype or crowd manipulation. Just amazing personal authority. I command you. And with a final convulsion, the spirit leaves the boy never to return to terrorize him or his family again. Then in verse 28 comes the debriefing. The disciples want to know, why couldn't we do it? After all, Mark chapter 6 and verse 7 records that Jesus had given his disciples authority over evil spirits. And verse 13 of that chapter tells us that they had enjoyed great success. They drove out many demons. So why couldn't they do it this time? Well, in verse 29 of our passage, Jesus puts his finger on the problem. Prayerlessness. The disciples had perhaps assumed that their previous success in casting out demons could be repeated at will, whenever they liked it. We've done this before. We know what we're doing. We can do it again. They took it all for granted and failed to rely on God. They needed to learn that they could not afford to rely on past successes or trade on past victories. And of course, neither can we. God often reminds his people throughout the scriptures about the importance of their daily dependence on him. Do you remember how, when the Israelites were in the desert, God sent manna from heaven to feed them? But this heavenly food was only given one day at a time. If they tried to store it up, it became rotten and inedible. And we too must learn to trust God each day and every day, one day at a time. But it's time for me to move towards a conclusion. I want to ask the question, what then is this passage all about? What does it all add up to? What place does this passage occupy in the bigger story that Mark is unfolding? Now, we've already noticed that Jesus foretold his death and resurrection in verses 9 and 10. I asked you to notice that at the beginning. But now, in verse 31, Jesus predicts those same events again, this time in more detail. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So here, then, are two references to Christ's death and resurrection, one at the beginning and the other at the end of our passage. 
Bet between them, they form what scholars sometimes call an inclusio, a pair of brackets or bookends. They draw our attention almost like spotlights to what lies in between. Well, look again one more time at what lies in between these two bookends, these two references to Christ's death and resurrection. Look again, please, at verse 26. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. And verse 27. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Literally, he arose. What we have here in this account of Deliverance from demonization, I think, is an anticipation and an illustration of the comprehensive victory over evil that Jesus would accomplish through his own death and resurrection. There are many meanings to Christ's death and resurrection, but here is one of the most important, that because Jesus died and is risen, Satan has been conquered. Evil has been overthrown. The powers of darkness have been vanquished. And a new age of light and life and love has dawned, has been ushered in, is now to be experienced. As Paul explains in the second chapter of his letter to the Colossians, that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. A comprehensive victory over the kingdom of Satan. And we can have confidence then that Jesus, having routed the powers of evil, will one day banish them forever. Let us fix it in our minds that despite any appearances or feelings to the contrary, in Jesus there is victory. And let us rely implicit, implicitly on the simple and yet vital weapons of childlike faith and dependent prayer. And then we too will find that no limits at all ever need be set on what God can do, that everything is possible for him who believes. Let us pray. Gracious Father, these are powerful and encouraging words that you have coarsely written in Scripture but we do feel the pull of the world, humanity organized without reference to God. We do feel the enemy within our sinful nature. And we have been reminded too that the devil, although a defeated foe, is still stung into action to do what he can to impede the progress of your kingdom. But in Jesus we have the victory. In him and with him, we are on the victory side. May we enjoy, live, believe, 
and love in the light of the victory that is ours in Jesus. Amen.